Okay, so I'm going to frame our, our little discussion for today and for this lunch. Uh, we're, we're framing this as, as creativity versus consistency. And I think one of the things that often we find is that some people gravitate towards creative, out-of-the-box uh, solutions and ways to engage problems. Other people gravitate more toward perseverance and steadfastness. And there tends to be the, an, an, an emphasis of one or the other. And the reality is, is that this shouldn't be framed as an either-or, but a both-and. And so the people who are going to speak today, both of them value um, both creativity and consistency. But we want to have a little bit of a, a discussion about, about that tension there. We realize that God is a creative God and that we are made in his image. And that when he makes the earth um, and, and creates all things, he shows a level of restraint in not making everything that would ever be made and every person that would ever be made, but invites human beings who are made in the image of a creative God to put their hands in the soil and look at the to create something out of what he has made. In other words, to, to look at the maple tree and draw out some maple syrup, and, and, and it is good. But then, on the other hand, we see that God is also faithful and consistent. His character is unchanging. And many times, he's calling his people to a long obedience in the same direction without changing, faithful and steadfast. We see that even in the course of a day, there's been no two days that, that are the same and God doing different things in the world. But at the same time, we see him, uh, that there are certain things about the, uh, certain aspects about each day that are the same. That babies are born, that the sun comes up and goes down, uh, that, that, uh, that he sustains life on the earth the same way. And so we, we kind of want to live in that tension, knowing that God is not an either or, but he's a both and. He's the lion and the lamb. He's the God of wrath and mercy, of grace and truth. And today we want to talk about him as both being the God who is creative and faithful. So what we're going to do is we're going to have Ken Weitzma come up, and he's going to talk about creativity. And then I'm going to do an, an interview um, with, uh, with Tim Mon, and then we're going to talk about uh, what, what this looks like, wisdom for both creativity and faithfulness and consistency, and then we'll have a time of open uh, questions. So with that said, uh, I just want to introduce uh, Ken as he comes up. Ken is a guy that I've ad admired for a long time. I've enjoyed like basically all of his books. I get them right away and I read them. Um, and uh, he's, he's uh, a pastor in Bend, Oregon. He's uh, a founder of Kilns College. Um, he's written some books. He's a pretty creative guy. He has good hats. So would you go ahead and welcome him up as he comes and uh, speaks to us. Good, good hats is the effect. Uh, bald head is the cause. Um, uh, how are you guys doing? Um, good to see you, Tyler. Uh, so I, a couple things just you need to know about me if you're going to kind of understand or locate where I'm at with some of this stuff is... I'm a local church pastor. I'm a church planter. Planted a church 11 years ago in Central Oregon. Uh, that's my my heart. I see that not as a vocation, but as is kind of a uh, my community and kind of my my north star in terms of um, where everything comes out of. Uh, and so Antioch is kind of the creative community or the incubator for everything else I do. Um, I'm a I'm an artist internally, even though I can't do anything artistic. I blame my dad for that. Uh, my dad is an immigrant. He was born in Holland in 44, and so I grew up with stories of my grandfather dressing up like a woman, riding a bike 20 miles uh, to, to get food, eating them. There was no food. Uh, there's other, tons of other stories, you know, digging up tulip bulbs and eating them. My mom, uh, when she first came around my dad's family when they were uh, together in Pasadena, about to get married, uh, wanted the potato peels, and the, the whole family freaked out because uh, the potato peels were what the German soldiers didn't eat, and so it's what they had to eat, and so there was like a, a thing about potato peels. Never really knew that until recent. But so my dad uh, was intensely practical growing up, 
um, as, as a Dutch immigrant might be. Uh, and so when I went away to college, I went to Clemson University on the East Coast, which most people know about now. Um, the, uh, the funny thing was, was my parents filled out my application. My mom wrote my essay. And my dad checked engineering, uh, not mechanical, but just engineering in general, because I was, uh, I, was, I was out skiing every weekend and didn't really care about college or anything of any importance until 22 when I became a Christian. Uh, so I got into Clemson, went down to Clemson, and it was a beautiful campus, better weather, big sports teams, and so I decided I wanted to go there. And my dad made a deal. Uh, it looked a lot more like um, manipulation. But it was, if, if you stay in engineering, I'll pay for college. If you leave engineering, then, then you can pay for your own college. And so I was blackmailed into an engineering degree that killed all expressions of art and creativity in, in my life, really. I can't even do math. That's not creative. But it killed math for me, too, um, unless I have a calculator. So I'm an I'm a artist internally and and even though I can't draw or do anything that you'd think of as artistic. And so where that's gone for me is in being a bit of an entrepreneur. Um, so with, with my schooling and just the way God made me, I, I dream of creating things that God might bless and, and they kind of go out. So church planting was a part of that. We have a, a school called Kilns College who sponsored these books, by the way. And so if you're looking for a one-year master's degree that you can do on a virtual campus or distance, we have a degree in Biblical and social justice, innovation and leadership, and then theology and culture. I would love to talk to you about that if, uh, if that's something God's been putting on your heart. And then the Justice Conference is something we started back in 2011. It's now going on its seventh year stateside and then is in seven different countries around the world. And so it's been fun to watch this global movement really of a conversation about a theology of justice. Um, taking root and kind of being in the global church. And so that's been an incredible blessing for me. But so as I've traveled around with the Justice Conference and, and seeing the church in different places in the world and just trying to gain perspective on what's, what's happening, one of the things that really jumped out to me, you can turn to page 80, was just uh, a sense of just how rapidly the world is changing. Um, and on page 80, what you see is pictures of Shanghai, and that's uh, the Pudong kind of peninsula there on the other side of the, the river. And basically in 25 years' time, the, the number of buildings and the size or even bigger of Manhattan uh, has grown up in Shanghai. And we could talk about Hong Kong the same way. We could talk about the next few biggest cities in China being the same way. And so they built in Shanghai in a period of five years the largest subway system in the world, world-class uh, in Boston, I don't think they've added a stop to their subway system in over 30, 40 years. And so I think we're aware deep down inside that the world is changing incredibly fast. Five years ago, no one would have imagined Donald Trump being president. Uh, no one would have imagined the change in the, the race conversation. Uh, Obama didn't change the, the, the issues of race in America. Social media did. When we had cameras and, and phones and Facebook slinging around different articles, like it brought to attention a lot of the latent things uh, or, or things that we weren't in our, our day-to-day life running into and changing that conversation. Just things are changing so fast with nonprofits and fundraising. I, I don't think World Vision or World Relief would have seen the competition coming 15, 20 years ago that came, uh, they say 90% of the nonprofits in the world today were started in the last 10 years. I mean, so that's unbelievable if you're running a nonprofit when you start thinking of how you're going to fund that or, or fundraise. It's just such a crowded market space. And then even the demographic that you're talking to doesn't think in terms of uh, charitable giving the, the way that older generations might have. And so everything's changing so fast. So we have this kind of idea of normalcy on the surface but, but most of us in this room are aware that deep down there's this anxiety about how everything seems a little bit more uncertain or, or the complexity of what's going on. And so I really started wrestling with that um, as a church planter, as someone that works with nonprofits, and, and kind of really trying to figure out, certainly God didn't leave us uh, without the tools to interact with this or to deal with this or to cope with it in a way that he would want us to, to kind of move forward. And so I was like, so if God hasn't kind of left us ill-equipped, what would be the things that he's given us 
to thrive or to at least walk by faith in what, what really, or a time period like today, right? And I think there's probably several answers we could come up with, but what really precipitated this book was the idea that creativity is one of those things. Uh, that God-given imagination or creativity is one of the ways in which we respond or, or adapt or evolve when we run into complexity. And so real quickly, uh, I love thinking about things theologically. It's what we do at Killens College is kind of, you know, look at God first and then look at a subject. You know, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So when we put God first or take account of God, look at things through his perspective, that's basically a simple definition of theology. Then we come to understand things a little bit differently than if we just came at them straight textbook definition, right? So you could put theology in front of any word and have a real interesting conversation. You could say uh, a theology of your roommate, like, you know, a theology of Robert. You know, how would I understand Robert, you know, by taking account of God? You know what I mean? Like, you can kind of really get practical theologically about anything. And so if we're going to talk about a theology of creativity, what would that really show us uh, about this idea or this concept of human creativity? And so that's kind of what I explored in this book. And the first part um, really was just starting in Genesis 127. And in Genesis 127, we see that uh, God created mankind in his image, male and female. He created them. Wait a second. God created mankind. Someone help me. There's three parts to it. Nobody, nobody memorizes their Bible? I think I marked it just because I always do this. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. There's the redundancy. Male and female, he created them. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So I sat with that, that verse for a while because it's kind of the verse we use for the image of God. It's the verse that we see God's kind of uh, crowning part of his creation going on. And as I sat with it, the thing that really jumped out uh, at, it, at me was that there's one word that shows up more than any other word in this kind of hallmark theological verse. And that, that word is other than God. And it only shows up twice, I think, and then there's like another pronoun for God, but you're right. Um, But the the right answer to the question for this launch is created. Um, The first time anyone's ever caught me on that. Um, But so so created shows up three times, so in, in the same form more than any other word in that verse. And, uh, and that's fascinating to me. It's fascinating because uh, I went and spent seven years at grad school deconstructing engineering a little bit in my mind. Uh, did a philosophy degree and then a theology degree. And I had four semesters of theology. And if you ever want to know what lack of creativity looks like, just go to seminary. Um, there's no creativity in seminary. I'll prove it to you. Uh, you want to know what my theology classes were called? Theology 301, Theology 401, Theology 101, Theology 201, Theology 301, Theology 401. They couldn't even put any adjectives. <laughs> like, what, you, what is in Theology 101? You could have just put some of those words, like, in the title, right? Um, in four semesters of theology, though, and, and some of you might have had the same experience, we, we parsed out the image of God, the stuff of God, the nature of God, Ten Ways to Sunday, and we talked about big concepts like immutability and uh, God's holiness, his transcendence, his imminence, his relationality, his rationality. I mean, we went so deep with the image of God. And there was one, one word that I never heard in my theology classes ever, um, maybe not even in my whole seminary um, experience. And that word was creativity. And so I, I thought that was really amazing that Genesis 1.27 has more than any other word, arguably, uh, this idea of created. And so here's the, the, the picture I want you to think of. If you were on a desert island yesterday, I made a joke about um, maybe just in the desert. But you're, you're, you're isolated. You're by yourself. You're, you're on a desert island. All you have is Genesis 1.27, Right. Um, uh, funny story about G.K. Chesterton. He was at a lunch like this one time with a bunch of uh, literary people, and they were supposed to be coming together to answer this one question over the lunch about if you could have any one book on a desert island, what would the book be? And so they all went around, and it was Shakespeare, and it was Milton, and it was kind of all these things. Um, 
uh, Cicero, and, and they were getting to Chesterton, and he was an outspoken Christian, so they were kind of expecting him to just do the, the Bible thing, right? And so they were kind of ready for that. It gets to him, everyone's like, oh boy, here it comes. And he kind of leans back, rather large guy, kind of sits with it for a while, strokes his beard, and he says, well, if I was on a desert island and I could only have one book, I should rather think that it would be Brown's book of shipbuilding that I'd want, you know. Um, anyways, desert island, you have just this verse, and, and you're with it 10 years or more, and I come to you and say, what's, what is a part of the image of God? What, what is the image of God? What does the stuff of God contain? I think the only thing that you could say, you, you, could, you could posit relationality, rationality, God's whole, I mean, you could posit those things, but the only thing that you could say with grammatical necessity is that God's a creative being who creates. And if we're a reflection of that, then that means we're creative beings made in the image of a creative God as well, right? So here's the first distinction that comes out of a theology of creativity is that artistic ability is a skill or a talent that some people possess, but creativity is a human trait. Artistic ability is a skill or a talent that some people possess, but creativity is a human trait. So the, the, the percentage of people in your churches or in your organization that would sit there and raise their hand and say, I don't have a creative bone in my body, They've been, they've been socialized into thinking that way, trained to think that way, but that statement is actually theologically incorrect. They're not artistic, but they're immensely creative. They see their own shapes in the clouds. They make their own weekend plans. They name their own dogs. Uh, they do variations on menus their own way, according to their own tastes. They're creative. What they've been taught to think is, unless they play the electric guitar, sing really well, do painting or poetry, that they're not creative, right? And that's just not true at all. They might not be artistic, but 90% of us aren't, right? But we're all creative um, because we're made in the image of a creative God. If we had time, we'd go into it, but they, they do studies that show that at age five, that 98% of uh, five-year-olds test out as genius level in, wh- in what's called divergent thinking. I talk about it in the book. Um, but divergent thinking, meaning that if you're given a question, you can come up with like 100 different possible solutions. Like, what kind of use is there for a paperclip? You know, if, it, if we're talking to a dull person that just gives like four reasons, it's like, well, to clip papers together, you know, to clip envelopes together, <laughs> to clip... Business, you know what I mean? Like it, you, you, that's dull. They say most um, adults will score at about 20, 20 to 30. If you get over 100, you're genius level. So what if the paperclip was really heavy and it was an anchor? What if it was really strong and you made chains out of it? What if it was made out of gold and it was jewelry? What if it, it was styrofoam and could float? What if, you know, and you get going and you come up with all these different ideas of what you could do with, with kind of that shape or that idea of a paperclip. And five, uh, five-year-olds tested out a group of them at, at 98% um, genius level. And then at age 10, the same group was tested again and half of them tested genius level. At age 15, tested again, and it halved once more. And basically, the idea is we all know that children are imaginative and creative because we're born creative. We just socialize it out of people. Why? Because conformity works really well when you're trying to contain a bunch of kids. Like, you don't want a bunch of kids being imaginative and creative and drawing on the walls with paint. And, you know, we want them to kind of all stay in one place and move together. It's that, that thing from the Dead Poet Society where you put them in the courtyard and get them to start marching. And pretty soon they all start marching in unison. Like, we, we like that. Uh, the education system is another part of it. We, we understand that if we have one teacher with one classroom, we really want to empower that teacher to use their gift to be creative, to teach those students and, and, and make it live, right? But when we think about it as the whole nation and we want to systematize and control the whole thing, we go the other direction and we go, let's standardize test all the children so that we can get metrics from all the different counties and then we can compare those things. And so now we're going to base all our teaching not around the creativity of the teacher, but the result of asking a question and making sure we get one answer, the right answer to that question. So if creativity or imagination or divergent thinking is one question, many answers, um, the, the opposite is one question, one answer. And so we, we educate creativity or imagination out of our kids. And so 
it's, it's an interesting thing to, to realize that when we get a church full of adults, that there's a latent creativity in them or imagination in them that nobody's probably nurtured in a very long time, right? And this is why I think it's really fun to talk to artists because most artists have come into an environment like that for a long time where they don't feel like they have a place. They come into church and it's like we're a different class and we're, we're kind of over here, but we don't really have a role other than maybe doing graphic arts or painting or whatever. I actually think that artists, if, if a pastor uh, or pastors are the, the, the guys or gals that equip others for the work of ministry, right? Pastors equip people for the work of ministry. Then the artists in our, our midst are the creative pastors that God has raised up or given us to help the rest of the body learn how to live fully into our human creativity, God-given creativity. So, so artists have this beautiful discipleship role to, to work with other people and help us understand human creativity. So uh, the first thing is just this, that we are creative, innately creative. The second thing, as I pondered it, was uh, coming out of Isaiah. It's in the book, but I'll just read it. It's a longer passage. I guarantee you nobody has it memorized. Um, but on page 42, this is Isaiah 54, verses 15 to 17. And it's this really interesting thing where God says, if anyone does attack you, so the Israelites are worried about uh, the, the foreign armies gathering, all those kinds of things. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. You see, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the, the coals into flame and forges a weapon for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. And it goes on. But basically... You are fearing these armies and the weapons of war. And God says, don't you understand? I'm the one who created the blacksmith who then made the weapons of war. In other words, I'm sovereign over all this. Not only sovereign in terms of being above it and still creating, but you have to now understand that my creativity, says God, is, is not just in the past, but also in the present. See, we, we in the evangelical church like to talk about God as the creator, and we leave God boxed into Genesis 1, 2, 3, etc., right? He's the one that created creation, period. But we don't think of God very often as a creative, right? Um, God is a creative being creating in our midst, and so there's this active part to it where it's not just in the past, but it's very much in the present. And then it goes on in Isaiah and, and goes even into the future. You see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth, which is, which is mind-blowing when you think about it, because every one of us in this room that is a Christian, our faith, our hope, our obedience is almost entirely hanging on our belief or trust in the future creativity of God. We don't realize it, though. Like, we don't think about it that way. But our whole kind of faith in his obedience is obeying God because God has said that he will create, and we're judging his words to be true. So we are hanging on the future creativity of God. So God did create, is creating, will create, just like our salvation could be said to be, we were saved, are being saved, will be saved justification, sanctification, glorification. So we have to begin to think of creativity as extending through time. So I, I was creative as a child. I still am creative now, and I will be creative tomorrow or next year. And so human creativity, just like divine creativity, is a very active and, and potential thing, right? So we don't fear the weapons of war because God is over that. We don't fear our doctor because God created We don't fear the, the bank officer that holds our loan. We don't fear the city that, that holds our permits that we want for our buildings. We, we trust that God created the, the directors of the city, and those are the people that then make or issue the certificates. So it really speaks to our understanding of faith in the present when we understand that God is still creating. Lastly, um, uh, and this came from a friend of mine in, who's a South African by birth. He's about 60, lives in Melbourne, Australia now. Uh, and he was an Afrikaner, grew up in, in apartheid. Uh, he and a bunch of friends went to heckle Desmond Tutu back in, I think it was the late 80s or early 90s. But was so impacted by what Tutu was saying, Bishop Tutu, 
that he, he became an advocate for ending apartheid, refused to speak Afrikaner. His dad was retired from the military. His, his older brother was like a major or something like that in the military. And here's this, this kind of Afrikaner by birth. His name is Vanant de Kock. It's a great Afrikaner name. Um, and he begins to kind of um, push against this. He's an educator now, uh, works with what's called the Open Seminary, connected with Eastern University out of Philadelphia. And Vanant's an artist, too. He paints. And he, he's doing this whole series he's been doing for years where he takes old things, like old tractors, weathered things, paints them to try and bring out their innate beauty, kind of with this whole idea that, that if we really understand things correctly, that, that things that are weathered are actually beautiful if we see them in the right light. We have this thing in America, certainly, I think also in Australia, that new is better, cleaner is, you know, we just don't understand the value or the beauty of, of age. So he's doing this whole series. We were going out to the Mornington Peninsula to go wine tasting, um, which is Pinot country, just in case you're curious. Um, if you didn't know it, um, if you go study the Greek, uh, Jesus turned water into Pinot Noir. Um, <laughs> we, we use wine as a shorthand, um, but it was Pinot. Um, I think that's funny. Um, you guys might not. Uh, so Vainant, we were driving into the Mornington Peninsula, and I was talking about this project, like working out a theology of creativity, and Vainant goes, I've never heard anyone else use that phrase. He goes, I've been spending the last decade, decade and a half, working on a theology of creativity too. And so he got really excited. Where do you begin yours? And I gave him kind of my whole drill, and I'm like, where do you begin yours? And he, he told me what ended up being the third part of kind of a theology of creativity in this book. He, he begins his in Genesis 1. It's fascinating. As an artist, as a painter, he sees in the creation narrative that when God separated light from dark, uh, the, the waters from the dry land, that God was really stretching out creation like a canvas to make it ready for God to then birth life, life that could flourish in the garden and have a relationship with God. So Vainant says it this way, that the first act of creativity we see with God is to make space for life. And we begin to realize that most of the best forms of creativity, starting a nonprofit, looking to create a, a new innovative kind of building idea in downtown Phoenix, creating a ministry to, to help people find jobs, all of the best forms of, of creativity are where we're helping uh, or looking to make space so that people can flourish, right? Um, our children, we're trying to create as parents space for them to flourish, um, as as disciple, uh, disciple makers or pastors who are doing discipleship, we're trying to help create space for people to flourish. Jesus, tear down this temple that was made by, by human hands over 40 years, right? This space where people are supposed to come close to God. Uh, tear that down and in three days, I'll make a new space, a better space where you can come closer to God and then flourish as you were designed to flourish. I'm creating space. So this idea of, of spaciousness and life and justice, how things are when they ought to be. And so, you know, God bringing us out into a land flowing with milk and honey where things can thrive or flourish. Um, when we take away land from people and committing injustice, we're doing the opposite of being creative. We're being consumeristic, right? And people aren't able to throw. I mean, you see the polarity. So a way of talking about this is that the best form of creativity um, is what I would call generous creativity or redemptive creativity or using our God-given creativity to help come alongside God in the reconciliation of all things. You see, the whole story of Jesus, we can take it down to the cross, which is in a moment in time, or the crux, the tipping point. But the reality is the scarlet thread of redemption in Scripture is a story. It's a, it's a narrative that God even built into Genesis and then unfolded creatively through time, through prophetic words and poetic words in the Psalms, and then even culminating kind of in this, 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 this hinge point that nobody saw coming. And we know that the Titanic movie and every other bestseller in Hollywood um, is, is, a, is a, a movie or a representation. Uh, what's the one? Les Mis. I mean, they're ripping off the gospel story, not moment, but story that God was writing in. So when God is, is working out his redemption, he's doing it in story form. 
and working toward reconciliation through grace. When we use our human creativity, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to come in and make space for life to flourish, joining God in the reconciliation of all things. Does that make sense? So this idea of how can we lean into creativity? How can we look at the problems that we've run into, the areas that we've gotten stuck? How can we imagine through faith that we might be able to get around that, over that, beneath that, um, that God would be leading us through his Holy Spirit to be able to come at things instead of a spirit of fear, uh, but in a, in a spirit of possibility, realizing that the God we serve is bigger than our problems. Um, so I'm going to just cut it there and give it back to you, Jim, because I know we're on a clock today. So. Can I just ask you one question? Yeah. Um, for those who need to cultivate the creativity, what would be some tangible things that you do for Yeah, there's, there's a lot of steps in the book that you have in front of you. Um, there's actually scientific ways that are proven to help grow or nurture creativity the first thing is just to understand that it's like a muscle by the way faith is the same way uh it's a muscle that can be developed or that uh and nurtured or it will atrophy through time and so um being around creative people going and getting out in nature uh writing things down um taking and doing a good job of of getting on paper your ideas because it's kind of been shown that most people can hook three ideas, like you have an idea, like, hey, that's really cool, and then I could do this, and then I could do that, and then all of a sudden you got three things, which is kind of complex, and you spend the rest of your energy or the rest of your time laying in bed trying to remember those three things. If you put those three ideas down on paper, all of a sudden your mind is free to go to the fourth iteration, the fifth iteration, and kind of onward. Uh, Change the routine of how you drive to work for just one day. Just mix it up. Um, If you're in leadership, Uh, build some time or space into your team meetings for creative thinking and processing so that people that don't normally speak up have an opportunity to put their voice in and to see how that might not bounce around and change things. So there's there's a couple lists in here. I think um, you can also go to like Alzheimer's things on online. Most of the things that grow human creativity are also the things that you do to stave off Alzheimer's, which is kind of a ironic um, little thing with brain science. So um, yeah, does that help? Yep. Thank you. All right, so uh, quickly turn to someone, uh, the folks next to you, and just name one thing that you could do to cultivate deeper creativity. Okay, let's go ahead and uh, wrap up the conversation. Um, so a question I want to ask you by show of hands is if, if you had to choose either or, um, when you come up to a problem, is your tendency more towards uh, a creative solution on one hand or persevering and staying faithful on the other hand. So who's, who kind of leans creative? Who, who leans faithful, would you say? Okay, less of you. Um, don't worry. The other, there are some people in here who are bashful about that, but we're going to recover that here. So I am the guy who's here today to kind of take the position of the, the argument for steadfastness and consistency and if you know me at all you know that that is absolutely crazy but primarily i'm i'm taking the position of the uh, of putting forth a picture of failure and of not doing it well so uh just to give you a little brief bio of of my life um i have lived in 34 different houses Um, 27 of them in the Phoenix metro area. So I've probably been your, your neighbor at some point. I have, uh, I went to three different high schools and didn't graduate from any of them. I probably have, um, uh, uh, more, uh, I, I literally have stacks of, of probably 20 or so, uh, whole books, uh, journals of ideas and things like that. And I think part of what happened in my life is as a kid, we were bouncing around a lot. I had some, some learning uh, disabilities, and it cr- actually created an opportunity for me to think way out of the box. Um, so I would actually be creative in those things. As a kid, when, with sports, the coaches would actually like bring me into the coaches' meetings to help help draw new plays and everything like that, and it really affirmed that aspect of 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 the world for me. Uh, as I got older, um, 
began engaging in ministry, uh, had a, more of an emphasis on starting new things. And uh, those things actually bore some fruit. People came to know Jesus. Um, the, when I was in Turkey, started a couple of nonprofits, uh, a basketball scouting company, uh, a very uh, failed Turkish art company where we sold Turkish art with Mike Creo here. We, we failed it together, mainly my fault, not his. Um, but it is true. Um, but I kind of had this bias towards starting new things, doing new things. And uh, when, when I was gripped by the theology of a creative God. But when we came back to the United States, my, my wife and I, um, I was traveling quite a bit, going to, to places that I felt like was important. Just to give a backstory, in those days, John Piper was saying, if you went to unreached people groups, that's when you were significant and important. He didn't say that, but that's how I interpreted it. Um, Tim Keller was saying, if you go to an important city, that's when you're, you really have significance and meaning in your life. Um, and uh, there were other people who were saying that, like the CCDA folks, you've got to go live in a poor neighborhood, and that's when you have significance in your life. So when I moved to Turkey, I hedged my bets, went to the, like, the important city with unreached people groups, and lived in the poor neighborhood. And really what happened was when I was coming back to the United States, um, I was doing all of these really exciting things and was in these, these places that I deemed important. And there was a lot of, of, of fruit from, from sort of creatively engaging stuff. But then my daughter was diagnosed with autism. And uh, what the doctor said to us is that I needed to not have six jobs, but one. Um, needed to not travel so much because one of the main things that someone on the autism spectrum needs to flourish is consistency and faithfulness. And it crushed me, to be honest with you. And really, what I was realizing what was happening is that was idolatry that was being confronted and crushed. That I was have, deriving meaning, and on one hand, from being creative, to the degree that if I would have continued down that path, it probably would have had detrimental impact uh, on, my, on my family for sure. And then on the other hand, I realized that a lot of what I was doing in the pursuit of new things was just a hunger for significance and running, running from failure and a, a feeling of insignificance. I was running in many ways, running from God. And so here I am with this kid who God used to expose and crush my idol. And we're going to have to, we have to start building these, these uh, patterns of, create, of, of, of faithfulness and steadfastness each day and consistency from day to day. And this little kid has been my tutor in the kingdom of God to show me things about God that I couldn't have even imagined. That God is also the God who is faithful. And, and my daughter is able to look at the things that we would tend to move past and think of as mundane and find joy and delight in them each day. In many ways, I think God put my daughter on the earth to delight in the small little animals and bugs that are masterpieces that he created that we overlook every day. And she has, has delight in God's creation at, in doing the same stuff over and over again. And I think it's that, that Chesterton quote, or C.S. Lewis, or some famous British guy who, who talks about uh, the whole do it again. When, when every morning when the sun comes up and when the, the waves come in, you know, uh, God says, do it again, do it again. And it's brilliant. And our God is a faithful God who has eternally existed as the same, same person, the same God. And he calls us to experience the beauty of knowing him and walking in a long obedience in the same direction, of faithfully attending to, the, to, to our walk with him and the good gifts he's given us to do in many ways without, without budging and not having to find our, 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 our life from, from something new, um, but from the, the incredible oldness that 
if our minds and hearts were in the right place, it would never get old to us. We would be overwhelmed each day. And so over the years, as a guy who's needed to, to struggle with these things, I've been on the lookout for people who exemplify faithfulness without diminishing creativity, seeing both as aspects of who God is and how we're called to walk in this world and wisely navigating them. There have been uh, you know, uh, authors like Wendell Berry, um, there are, uh, and, and Eugene Peterson, there are a number of people, but honestly, the people who are faithful and stick at it for a long time, uh, they don't get biographies written about them. But there's, there's one person that I've kind of watched in the pastors at Redemption, admiration over the years, um, and his name's Tim Mon. He's one of the pastors at Redemption, and I thought he would be a great guy for me to interview um, today to kind of draw out some of that as a person who's been really faithful and consistent but also um, uh, someone who makes space for others and space for creativity. So I'm going to invite him up now, and I'm going to ask him a few questions. Would you uh, give him a hand as he comes up? There you go. Thanks, Jim. All right. So um, by way of introduction... Um, would you just tell us a little bit about your role at Redemption and just give us your little your, your ministry bio, your mini version of it. Okay. Um, my role right now is I'm the lead pastor at Gilbert Congregation, which was formerly East Valley Bible Church, so it's been around for 25, going on 26 years. So uh, Tom Schrader, I worked with him for a long time, and then when he transitioned out, I transitioned in. My ministry background, I suppose, to be fair, would include my father's story a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, my dad's a pastor, was a pastor. He's 83, and on his way out in, in the grace of God. But um, so I was in church as an unbeliever, like every pastor's kid is for, you know, um, by obligation for many, many years. God got my heart in uh, 1980. So I went to Bible college because that's what pastor's kids do. And uh, it done, that began the journey of kind of ministry for me. So I was in a, I've been in two churches serving in my ministry life, uh, one for 13 years and now Gilbert for 20. Hmm. So um, one thing that's, that's interesting, I've heard you comment on before, is, is that you, you keep it pretty simple. Uh, you have some, some pretty consistent, simple... I mean, personally? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, patterns, patterns of life. Mm -hmm. um, would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a kind of a running joke in redemption. Uh, people, people in redemption, mm -hmm. i.e. Jim, get around. Tyler uh, is one of my best friends, gets around. I don't get around. And that's by decision and choice. Um, I'm the antithesis to the, every conversation we're having here. I'm, I uh, drive a seven-mile circle in my life, um, and I do what I do. And I made decisions about that. I mean, I, I, uh, people who know me know I'm a passionate guy and driven like crazy. So I have all of the history of being a 20-something, tearing the world apart, thinking I could fix it all. So I have all that, and I have the scars from that. Um, but I, I, I've come over time now at 55 years old figuring out what, uh, what is a place of health for me, um, health for other people, because me, me as a driver can run over people. So I've taken more of an approach to be smaller and more removed from, from being a part of every story and every, every uh, situation. So I've kind of intentionally said, what am I supposed to do? Like, what, what, is, what is the specific that I'm supposed to play? I want to play that as, as hard and as much as I can. And then I put specific limits on what that is mm -hmm. for my life. And then the rest is uh, fanning other people's flames mm -hmm. is what I do. So what are those specific limits and how would you come to them? Oh, man. Um, well, this is over time. So everything we learn in our own uh, process of becoming like Christ typically comes through scabs, at least in my life. You know, I have a longer list of things I've learned from failure and things from discipleship that is, looks proactive, you know, like people that protected you from stupid things. I learn mostly from the other. And so, um, so how did I come to grips with some of these things? Was as I grew older, I, I knew that for me to give space to people and future leaders, which is a huge value for me, was that I got to be more quiet and more removed from every decision and in every environment. So I kind of 
where I think, and this is part of the subjective nature of leadership, is where you think you're supposed to put input, you do. But then I always ask myself the question, how much, how far, how precise does it have to be? And, and how much wiggle room is there in a room that's trying to grow up to and trying to create uh, and invent new ways to do old things? Um, also, the other part of that was age, you know, um, getting older and slower. And uh, I thought, I don't really know if I'm the right guy for Gilbert, but God gave it to me, so mm. I'm going to try really hard. I knew this when it happened, that there's a different level of burden mm. than what I did before. You know, if you're running around in the background, that was my kind of role at Gilbert for five or six years, was to be sort of the executive. We didn't have formal titles, but I was the, ma the man that made things happen. Tom would, you know, do his teaching. When you take on the role of leadership, funky things happen to people and funky things happen to leaders. Mm -hmm. People have expectations of you that isn't real, and, and you have a tendency to force yourself into some of those things, you know? So I'm always fighting against those fictitious expectations and narratives about who I am and what they think I'm supposed to be. So in my, in my experience of going through this, I felt like, you know what it's gonna do? It's gonna kill me. And my, my, the way I'm gonna manage my descending life will be I'll get worse version of me. I'll bow up, I'll, I'll dominate a meeting because I want the meeting to get over. Um, I'll do all the wrong things if I don't manage me. So what I did was just say, I'm gonna give it everything I got from Sunday to Thursday, and then I shut everything off. Hmm. Um, I don't, I'm not on social media, I, I don't really email. Uh, people know this, if they want me, they talk to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that's a way for me to manage um, uh, Good, good relationships. You know how hard it is when you're trying to print how you feel or print what you think to people who misread or read in between lines and then you have to have a meeting anyway? <laughs> I just figured, well, that's a waste of time. Don't five days and invite everyone in. Mm -hmm. So I, I try to limit my lifespan to five days, however long those days are, I don't care. Mm -hmm. And then it goes off the grid on Friday and Saturday and starts all over. And that's part of how I manage my health mm. and two, how I manage the worst part of me that would come out if I had to care for everything. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that I've observed is that um, people who are mentor mentored by you and who are led by you, um, it, there tends to be this balancing out is that people who tend to be the creative flight risk, they stick around longer. Um, People who tend to be afraid of change, they try some new stuff. Um, and uh, so I want to ask you both of those questions. Like, what has it looked like as, as, a, as a leader, as a manager, as a mentor to create space for creativity? And then I'll ask the other side of that next. But what, what has it looked like to create space for the people who work with you and under you in the org chart? Well, I'm, I'm, all these answers, by the way, are not very precise, so uh, forgive me if they don't make a lot of sense. But in my world, the only way I know how to do ministry is at the highest level of relationship. Mm. So I'm for our, our guys, our employees, at the highest level, meaning um, I try to see them succeed for, for not only for the gifted ways I think how to shape them, for their own growth or development, their influence and their platform in our church. Because the more, the more broad you can make your leadership, the more people can be blessed by it. If it has to go through one door, it's really, you know, most of us know environments where it goes through one place and it's really not very healthy. So um, I love our people. And so when I meet a guy who's super creative or who I think has it in him, I really champion him. I really... I get him closer, and uh, if he's, you know, it's true of anything. When you're leading someone, if something doesn't seem right or it needs correction, we have conversations. But nevertheless, I'm really for their future, and I, I, I kind of, and I don't know how this works. I don't know how it works for anybody else. For me, I kind of have done this forever. I look at a guy, and based on what his personality is, and based on the things he does and says, I've almost already have a finished shape in my head of what he's going to look like mm. when he's older. Mm. I don't know if it's true. It's just like he could be. And then I press in those directions. I go, he could be that kind of leader. He could be that kind of preacher. And so I kind of put those expectations on him in a gentle way, in the right context, over the right time. And, and I'm totally committed no matter what to him. Mm. So he knows that I don't have any, any agenda other than him. 
and his health. That means you can say not just the good things that most guys in a ministry environment want to hear, like, where can I go? Because ministries is jacked up as every other thing people do in the world. Insecurity drives a lot of things, and so people do the right thing for the wrong reasons so many mm-hmm. times, and you have to be uh, candid about dealing with those things. But there's so much fear involved in ministries. I don't mm. fear about, uh, I know me. You know, I'm, I myself am the worst of sinners. I don't belong here. Um, and that because I haven't done, I don't know, and I don't have experience, and my age and all those types of things. And so I'm the one that's champion them in the midst of those fears as well, as well as calling them out on all the particular things I look at and say, well, those are kind of in the way and those are other issues and, um, and I never quit. So in the sense of creativity, and again, I, I, hearing the speaker, I have to adjust the language. When I think creativity, I'm talking about people who, let's say the shape is artist or influencer in things that we do and express, you know? So those types of people, um, I do several things. And, and one of them is I resource them to death. Hmm. Um, I give them whatever they need to win with enough reasonable expectations, right? And enough accountability. And this is the key word, <laughs> with discipleship because in the creative world in my experience for 30 some years in church it is the desert of discipleship because what was said earlier and i heard it um everyone's creative but only few artists well most of us hire artists to lead worship what what typically happens because they're so unique of a bird they get left alone and any tree in the wind grows crooked and so we've got to be able to disciple them and discipling the things that happen to people who are, you know, excuse the terms, but having their own babies all the time mm-hmm. with their art. And you're always having to reshape it in the lens of what we do and why we do it and who they are. So their, their whole value to me or to Jesus clearly isn't because of what they do mm-hmm. or how great the song is or anything, mm-hmm. you know. So we talk about that. To those people who are not necessarily that type of person, mm-hmm and I do this with everybody, I'm always looking for their shape or um, different terms are my terms, but like their, their uh, what spirit do they bring to this? Like wh- what is their lane? Mm-hmm. Where should they be on? What should they be doing? And the difficult part of this is that there's this, this missing ingredient that's not very comfortable and it's very expensive, at least in our culture. It's called time. Mm-hmm. And um, if we're IBM, I suppose, well, and not real quickly, heads could roll, People could come, people could go, but I'm so committed to people and not only the people that we have, but finding out where they belong and taking the trip to find out, Mm. not just so that I know, but so that they know it and they love it Mm. because there's so much gift, envy, and insecurity in ministry. People are always striving for the wrong thing that you have to take the time for them to go, oh, this is better. 